Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Accidental Activist, presented by Mercedes-Benz. Before each episode this season, as a part of the I Am Mercedes campaign, we'll be profiling different young women named Mercedes who are all chasing big dreams. I am Mercedes, and I am based in Corona, California, and I am 29 years old. I am passionate about dancing. I feel cultural dance is very important. I grew up in the Polynesian culture aside from my Hispanic traditions, but it has taught me respect and it shows me the importance of telling stories through the movement of dance. I believe we should be honored to be women and to express ourselves, especially through dance. It's a freedom, you know, and it's a beautiful art form. I feel I was born to dance. Dance is my gift. I just want to keep inspiring by spreading kindness and love. I am grateful and honored for being part of the I Am Mercedes campaign for Mercedes-Benz. It's so inspiring and so cool knowing that I'm not the only Mercedes and that there's also other Mercedes making an impact in the world. What a great story from an amazing young woman. And now, on to this week's episode. As humans, humans as a, as a race, we are not communal creatures. If we get rid of the Confederate flag, <laughs> how am I going to know who the dangerous white people are? Most young people get their news and shape their opinions from The Daily Show. Yep. Trevor, we are operating at maximum levels of blacktivity that we haven't seen in decades, better known as peak blackness. Don't trust us. I don't think entertainers today, I don't think they want freedom of speech. They want freedom of venue. Hello, everyone. I'm Aisha Sasei, and welcome back to The Accidental Activist, the show where we discover how an accidental turn of events can spark one's passion to change the world. Today, my guest is producer, writer, and all-around funny man, Roy Wood Jr. Roy is perhaps best known as a correspondent on The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, but he's also a growing force behind the camera, having executive produced the PBS documentary The Neutral Ground, as well as an HBO project called 1% Happy. His real talent is blending comedy with weightier topics, a skill many others have tried and failed at. While he's making you laugh, Roy's also doing something else, attempting to shift your understanding of a variety of social issues that are shaping the world around us. But his activism goes well beyond the stage. As you'll hear during our conversation, Roy is a comedian with a social conscience. Not only did he raise money for comedy club staff who'd lost their jobs during the pandemic, back in his hometown of Alabama, he's an active supporter of school literacy programs and Workshops, Inc., 
which helps people with disabilities and employment barriers towards their professional goals. So, I wanted to know how and why Roy Wood Jr. became a comedian on a mission. Roy drops a lot of knowledge and laughs in this episode. I hope you enjoy the show. Roy Wood Jr., welcome to the show. How are you doing? Good. How are you? That's my esteemed voice. Well, hello. Good good day to you. I can't explain it, but like when I get to sit with legit journalists, I get excited because I'm like, oh, this will be a, at minimum, an intelligent conversation. Even if it's not fun, it'll be smart and exciting and different. You know, there's just certain questions that people ask first and you're like, ah, this is going to be some bullshit. Oh my God. (laughs) 29 more minutes to go. (laughs) Well, well, let's get into it. Let's see what you think of my first question. (laughs) So as a comedian, you spend a lot of time. Oh my God. Listen, listen. I'm kidding. You're great. Pipe down. You spend a lot of time on the road, especially early on in your career, doing gigs outside major cities. I want you to imagine that I was an alien from another planet, you could call it England, and I was here and knew nothing about America. How would you describe the state of this country today? If someone just came here, I would say that you have people who are more alike than they are different, but they don't realize it because they've been divided by people who benefit from division. I think Hmm. that would be the biggest thing. I think that... People think of America as an ideal, but America is a corporation. America is a big corporation. It is a corporation compiled by many miniature corporations. And I think together, they're all able to do things that I believe are able to keep people divided, keep people struggling, keep people underwater. My first nine years of comedy, I still lived in Alabama. I was not a coastal comedian. I did not start on the coast. So... To have a career in comedy in the South, to make money every week, at least, to pay rent, you have to possess the ability to entertain different demographics because there is no one demo that can sustain you on the road. So it might be trailer parks one week. It might be black people. It might be blue hairs at a casino. It might be a college. So you see the whole gamut of the different types of people. And over the course of writing material to entertain these people, because I didn't want to change my act every demo, it started becoming an exercise in what are the things that they all have in common so I can talk about that specifically. And so that kind of became the journey. And then as I started growing as a comic, you start realizing, oh, wow, there's a lot of overlap, you know? And it's a lot of it is poverty. A lot of it is just really just people trying to struggle to survive for themselves. Also, the other thing that I, that I think a stranger should know about America is that humans as a, as a race, we are not communal creatures. Oh, I don't That's interesting. That. that goes against a lot of established thinking, which says that we are tribal, we, we have a fundamental human need to gather. You say no. There are sub-communities that all care about one another and all look out for each other. But as a race of humans, I don't think so. I I think that there is a large swath of this country, especially when you look at voting and issues, 
Everyone wants a candidate that's going to do something for them. What are you going to do for me? Is that peculiar to America? Because I know you've traveled a great deal, not just inside this country. But do you think that is something that is unique to America? Yeah, I think it's unique to America because America has some of the most cultural melting pot, is the word they love to use, versus other places. That's why I don't think it's always fair to compare America to other countries, especially the countries in Europe, where traditionally they have more of a wholeness culturally, if you will. And some of that may come from just the countries just being smaller. I know it's not like that everywhere else around the world, but within those subgroups in America, I feel like there is definitely more of a, what are you going to do for us? So you look to the politician that's going to do something for you, even if it's at the detriment of everyone else in America. President Trump chooses to move this country forward. And I think that's the thing that separates humans from other animals. I talked about it in my comedy special, my last special. I have a six-year-old, and at the time when I was writing the special, we were just watching nature videos during the quarantine or whatever. And when it floods, a colony of fire ants collect in a ball, and they float to wherever there's dry land, and that's where they set up shop next. And the ball is a rotating it's just a rotating ball of ants floating, and there's ants on the bottom that are drowning, waiting for their turn to come back up to the top to get air, and that's how the ball revolves. But every now and wow. then, a couple of ants drown. All the ants don't make the journey, but they all contribute to the floating of the fire ant race, if you will. <laughs> there are not many Americans. Imagine watching that with a four-year-old eating graham crackers. I was just thinking and, about that. And he's just having a good time watching the fire ants, and I'm just thinking. <laughs> and you're wow. like, whoa. The human race ain't going to make it. Oh, <laughs> Lord, we're not willing to drown for one another. In America, there aren't enough groups willing to drown for the greater good of America. So let me ask you this. I often think of comedians as being sort of anthropologists, you know, really capturing the, the vagaries and nuances of life. That's what they distill down into comedy. Talk to me about your beginnings. You mentioned being raised in Alabama, in Birmingham. What was that like as we talk about your environment and absorbing those nuances? Birmingham is a different place. It's similar in the sense that it, Birmingham is similar to Atlanta in the fact that the joke is that Atlanta is surrounded by Georgia. I lived in Atlanta for 10 years. Okay, so then you know that you know it's once you get outside of Cobb County and Fulton mm -mm. County, it's a little mm -mm. different over there in Villa mm -mm. Rica. I don't and, do um, that. Yeah. Do that. <laughs> <laughs> once you get past Lawrenceville, it's a little dicey. <laughs> a little dicey at night. And so Birmingham is similar in that regard, that it is a, about a 75% black city. It is a blue county surrounded by red. Most of the counties surrounding Jefferson County in Alabama Trump won those counties by almost 95% with 95 wow. points. Wow. I did not know that. Like straight sweeps. That's the disparity between those two areas. So when you grow up in this weird kind of all black, I stay on the black side of town. I went to public schools. They were all majority black. I probably had total until college, maybe four or five white classmates. Once I got to high school, the number went up to like, 10, maybe 20. 
that has a way of skewing your view of the world a little bit. And I think that I, I lived a life from my father, who was a civil rights journalist, and my mother, who's been in higher ed and educating Black minds for coming up on 40 years now, and then going to Florida A&M, which is a Black college. Yeah. I was raised in this spirit of prepare for the world, because what's out there and for whatever's beyond the horizon ain't like Birmingham, and it ain't like FAMU. So just be aware of what has happened in our lives and be aware of how that could change you going forward. Was I mean, it intense? It feels like when I was thinking about your childhood as I prepared for our conversation, I couldn't help but think that it was a childhood framed by issues and conversation about meaningful, important things. And then I read about your father giving you the birds and the bees talk after they found your, 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 <laughs> the your flesh mags, to be your fair, flesh mags in the living room. To be fair, those were his flesh mags that he put in the house that I then but hid under the couch. put in the couch. I was going to the put them back in the, in the stash spot. His stash spot shouldn't have been in the house. That's on him. <laughs> it's his fault. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, my father's always been big on educating me. Oh, you're going to look at a flesh mat? Well, go upstairs and get the encyclopedia and we're going to learn everything. <laughs> I would say, though, my home was a little more intense because of just, you know, what my parents went through coming up, dealing with racism in the segregated South. But growing up in Birmingham, growing up as a black child in a black city in a black side of town, it was very jovial. Like, there was a lot of celebration. Yeah. They definitely worked to teach us our history, like, knowing what I know now. <laughs> like, you probably shouldn't be showing roots to third graders, but they did. It wasn't all the white people that go get you. But you did take a lot of field trips to civil rights museums. I remember distinctly, we were still living in Memphis in the first grade. We took a field trip to Alex Haley's house. Oh, wow. In the first grade, they were like, come learn about <laughs> this dude. So, <laughs> and you thought what as a six, seven year old? Nothing. We're going to the house. Did we go to McDonald's? <laughs> Are we stopping at McDonald's on the way back to school? Because every field trip was just about going to McDonald's. And when you get older, you realize, ah, oh, wow, they were trying to just give us some degree of culture, just trying to give us something. It didn't seem intense until I got outside of that. I started traveling. You start meeting other people whose experiences different, especially in college when I started meeting, as I like to call it, the spectrum of blackness, the diaspora. Oh, but I do like you acknowledge that because that is something that I've seen that in, in your stand-up, you know, you acknowledging the diaspora of blackness and maybe some of the blind spots African-Americans have to that. Yeah, that goes back to the division point and the whole corporation aspect of that. It works great to keep melanated folks divided and thinking that they have some sort of ranking or system. I can't remember who said it, and I'm sure a bunch of people have said it, but they said the only difference between black people is just where the slave ship dropped you off. Mm -hmm. Once you start there, and then you start really peeling back a lot of the history of black people that did not start their, their heritage journey in America, you go, oh, damn, they was... Y'all was getting mm -hmm. whooped on, too. Y'all was going through struggle, too. Y'all had issues, too. So it's like we're all traumatized. And I think the more we knew about that, the better off we would be in America and understanding 
Africans coming over or black Brits coming over or Caribbeans, people from the Caribbean. I, did I just say Caribbeans? Like that was a race of people. You know, them Caribbeans. You know, them Caribbeans. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 it's all good. It's all good. Yeah. You know, we're all one. Yeah. Okay, so I hear you say that and I hear the keen observations that you obviously sit and you think about. And once again, you know, the research that goes into your comedy, which you've, you've talked a great deal about. And I can't help but think that your father was a civil rights journalist in the 60s and 70s. You talked about how photos, if you look at them with Dr. King, he's probably like three, three rows behind. He's there yeah. somewhere. And you go from all of that. You come from that. A mother who's an educator. And you're a comedian. <laughs> so here's what's wild about that. I went to school for journalism and I and you know, and I, I have know. two I have two older brothers that are also one was an assignment desk editor and EP for various stations in America for twenty years. The other one was an anchor reporter then anchor over the course of like a twenty year arc. And I didn't want to do anything that they were doing. But then I saw Stuart Scott. There's a handful of journalists that kind of lit the fire for me. Stuart Scott. Ringo Butter, because he is on a roll. Fred Hickman at the time at CNN SI. There was another gentleman at uh, Headline News named Van Earl Wright. Now for the Friday night NBA report that tips off at the home of a group of champs. Just the way he talked and intonated was just different. And it was humorous. And then also Jenny Moose from CNN. Jenny. Oh, uh, yeah. It was always offbeat, quirky observation, and Stuart Scott looked like me and sounded like me. And I was like, okay, well, I can do, I can be funny and talk about sports, right? Okay, journalism. And so I get into journalism, and the more I look at stand-up, first off, the first 10 years of my comedy career, let's write that off. That's okay. the internship. Okay. Like, okay, I told a bunch of jokes that I'm like, all right, that joke wasn't funny, but that joke got me to the next year. As I started looking at the world and trying to find different perspectives on issues, the more I looked at it, I just started trying to construct my jokes like a journalistic, like making an argument, making a case. What are the both sides? What has everyone said about this issue? Okay, what has not been said that I could say? And then seeing, like going on message boards and really digesting all of the discourse on any, whatever the issue is I've talked about, what has everybody said so I can make sure I'm bringing something new to the conversation, which I think is the job of a decent journalist is to at least mm -hmm. present you with new information and not regurgitate everything else that's been done. And that's when I realized that when going with my father to all of these speaking engagements, you know, my dad used to take me with him, you know, he would speak to black mayors, he would speak at black churches. I remember distinctly in 1993, National Association of Black Journalists, they give my father an award. It's a Lifetime Achievement Award in 93 from NABJ. Oh, wow. And we go to Houston, and you can Google this because this is true. The Chicago Cubs, my team, were in town in right. Houston the same weekend, right across the street from the hotel. And my fucking father would not let me go. To that baseball game. Priorities, I'm, Roy. I'm like eighth grade, ninth grade. I'm old enough to go by myself, dude. Just let me go. And he just goes, nope, you need to see this. 
and it, it was wasn't shaping you. it wasn't about the award it was all of those black people in that space mm-hmm. and seeing mm-hmm. them all unified under one goal of doing something and that that kind of came rushing back to me as my comedy started changing my comedy probably changed the most when i got to the daily show which my first hour special didn't come out until after i got the daily show which i'm also which is 2015 for. 2015 yeah. right yeah your, your father you know and i know fathers and sons are making direct drawing direct lines can be fraught and you have referenced this in, in previous conversations somewhat you know obviously your father was committed to drawing attention to the ills and the challenges of this country yes what is your motivation what drives your comedy i think it was that for a while i think it's pivoted a little bit now though you know, in terms of where I want to head with what I want to talk about. I've talked about or tried to draw attention to or tried to be humorous about the ills of the country, as you say. But I think that there's something that resonates in being able to share your own feelings and experiences and that also being a tool of connecting with strangers. Because, like, up front, my jokes are... Hey, we're all arguing about this, but have we as a group considered this? Stand for the anthem. This is my second special. Stand for the anthem or take a knee for the anthem. That was always the argument. Stand or kneel, stand or kneel. Okay, but also the anthem is a terrible song. Is there a song that we would all stand for? Let's explore that. And then that becomes the joke. Now, if I was doing that journalistically, that would be a man on the street segment where I'm just asking random Americans, hey, what song would you stand for if not the anthem? Right. I'd stand for Beyonce. Right. I'd stand for the... Alien so, superstar. Mine is Bruno Mars 24 Karat. That, <laughs> I think everybody would stand for that. <laughs> so that became the exploration. Whereas now, I'm like, man, there's something about parenting. And I think that there's something, and I've used these words to describe my father in the past, you know, great father, okay, husband, like there was, you, you, you fumbled a few balls there, coach. There's room for improvement. And, you know, my father passed when I was 16. So I'm 43 now. So there's a lot that I did not learn from him that I learned from someone. Right. So who were those people? And what did I learn? And when did I learn it? Because those people weren't trying to teach it. How and why did I absorb that? How much did community play a role in shaping who I am after my father passed? And that's the exploration that I'm on now. I did Finding Your Roots with uh, Dr. Henry Louis Gates, and it ravaged my brain. Aren't you distantly related to John Lewis? Yeah. Second cousin. Found that out on the show, too. And what does he do? Run around and talk about the ills of this nation. It's in the bloodline. Is it? That's, and that's the thing. It's like, no matter what I didn't want to become when I was 14 and 15, I ain't doing journalism. I was going to be a firefighter. That was the plan. Just be a firefighter. Go straight to the academy at 18. Retire at 33. Just like my friend Big Mike back home. He retired at 30. That boy living good right now. Got a good grill and good grass. That's what <laughs> every black man in the South just wants a nice barbecue grill and quality Bermuda side. But, you know, fate has a way of bringing you back to where you're supposed to be. 
know what you're running from sometimes. Time for a quick break. We'll have more of my conversation with Roy Wood Jr. when we come back. Welcome back, everyone. Here's the second half of my conversation with Roy Wood Jr. Are there other issues comedy can tackle and, and spaces it can broach that journalism, it's, it's just more problematic or more fraught? How would you describe the power of comedy, particularly given how you've described this country and, and where we are today? To me, stand-up comedy is the most powerful form of journalism. It's more effective. Oh, interesting. Because it's more immediate? Because, because it's, it's more, more visceral? Because it's okay. more immediate, because it's more visceral, and because it's allowed to plug into people's emotions out the gate. Be it good or bad, stand-up comedians have the luxury of attaching themselves to an emotion that journalists don't. Journalists can eventually get to that point, but you have to prove and write a thesis. And that's also part of why I really hate that print journalism does not get the respect that I believe it should get when so many stories are breached by print and not broadcast. Yeah, because print has the ability to really get into the granular, deeper, nuanced parts of something. Whereas broadcast, you know this, boom, 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 quick, quick, quick. And here's a couple, here's three minutes. Here's the story you missed last week. And comedy has a way of kind of oscillating between those two disciplines. The comedian can be quick if they want, or they can sit in the pocket on something. And for as long as I'm making you laugh an average of two times a minute, or if you Jerry Seinfeld, mm. four laughs a minute. Which <laughs> is, is this some statistic that you guys yeah, have four laughs as comedians? A, yeah, when you do late night sets, they count your laughs per minute. To <gasps> they like, do not. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a stupid metric, and it's not a be-all, end-all. You could go 60 seconds without a laugh, but that laugh after 60 seconds better be the equivalent. It better be good. Two laughs. Yeah. So like, yeah, that like sometimes that's how some late night bookers and they always bring it back to Seinfeld. Seinfeld, four laughs a minute. Just a bang, 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 bang. This man has candy. I'm going with him. Goodbye. I don't care what happens to me. Get candy, get candy, get candy, get candy. I think that comedy has the ability to broach topics. Here's the downside to stand up comedy. Stand up comedy is not researched. Stand up comedy, more often than not, is not always spoken from an educated place. Stand up comedy also does not necessarily honor pushback or assessing something from both sides. And also, most stand-ups, they ain't doing follow-ups. Chappelle might be the only one to do a second special addressing something from the first special, Mm -hmm. and even that was from a more argumentative place. So it's not necessarily a place where you're going to get all of the information. But you will get an introduction to what the conversation is. And I think there are a lot of people in this country that are more pliable to that than they are journalism because comedy is an easier spoonful of sugar to digest. Maybe if you did late night news on a big ass stage with flashy lights, (laughs) 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 maybe if the news had a Netflix special, maybe we would watch that boring ass shit. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, you touch on something that I was really stunned by when I first moved here. I I came to America in in 2005, and I was surprised to learn that most young people get their news and shape their opinions from The Daily Show. Yep. Don't trust us. 
<laughs> you think you can get some news. You get awareness from The Daily Show. I don't think you get all the news, all the story, but we, we're still a comedy program first, and that's always going to have limitations on everything that we can do. There's certain stories that get pitched that we aren't able to do simply because there is no joke because it is so sad. I get DMs from people around the world, which is probably the toughest part of The Daily Show is getting messages from people that are in areas where wild shit is happening. And it's something that we just cannot quantify into a joke. We can mention it, but we'll never be able to get into the depth with the big word alert, efficacy. There we go. Did I get that one out right? Again. Yeah, you did. Yeah, you did. We will never be able to touch certain traumatic events with the level of efficacy that a proper media outlet would do. I remember when when the United States left Afghanistan. And you know, I can't speak for the other core all of the correspondents, but some of us were getting DMs from people that were trying to get into the airport. Incredible. What do you do with that? There are certain atrocities that are happening in this world that are going to be beyond the reach of the Daily Show because of the limitations of that humor puts on being able to talk about certain things. But you do use your platform and your your visibility to tackle issues. You've made alliances. You're, you're, you champion childhood literacy. Back in, in, in Alabama, you during the pandemic, you worked on, on helping other comedians stay financially afloat. Why is that important to you? Um, you know, you have just touched on the limitations of the Daily Show. Is that a, a direct response to being maybe restricted there? Or is this back to your childhood? A little bit of both. A little bit of both. The cool thing that I'll always give Trevor Noah is that You know, I was never told no on a story that I wanted to do or that I thought about wanting to do. It's just a matter of how do we make it funny? Where are the jokes? You know, where are the jokes? What are the notes that connect the information? There's certain stuff that I'm always thankful because, you know, there's just been a lot of times where I've been down bad and I've had someone that would do a single favor that opened four more doors and they're not even aware what they did, how much it was able to help me. So you just try to do the same. When we were doing uh, Comedy Gives Back, when the pandemic first started, when all the comedy clubs shut down, that was me immediately remembering my first nine years on the road. And if all you do is tell jokes to pay your bills and now there is no place to go and tell the joke, you're in a bad spot. Totally. And most of those comedians were already living check to check as it is. Like, I remember, I remember having a gig one time, and the gig canceled on the way. Oh. And that gig was my gas money home. Oh. That's how comedians live. You know, I think that, you know, there was a segment that, that we did about gun violence in Chicago and how Black people are a part of combating that. Because that's always the narrative, that Black people don't care about 
black on black we just crime. Kill it. We just kill each other and we don't yeah. really care. We only care about what the police kill. Not true. Mm. There's a thousand groups out there doing the right thing. It's just A lot of local pastors running groups in Chicago trying to bring uh, groups together. But if the media don't put that out there, then who's ever going to know? So I pitch it to Trevor. He's with it. And it ended up being a piece that was probably, it was a little more serious than it was funny, but it had jokes. And you you start learning about people that are part of the solution to a lot of systemic issues. And then how these issues are not all rooted in one single thing. And I really do believe about that illiteracy to prison pipeline. And when you look at the statistics, if everybody wants to believe stats, there is a correlation between education and the likelihood of you going to jail. So yeah. If there's a program in Birmingham, like I see me, that's putting books in the hands of city school kids, I'm a city school product, and the books have imagery of black children so you can see yourself doing something bigger, so you can hopefully imagine yourself doing something bigger and greater, then yeah, I'm going to do what I can to support that because I know at the end of the day, that's going to help millions of people. I care a lot about the city of Birmingham and trying to make that place and doing what I can with my gift to pour back into that community that poured into me. You know, America's a big country and, you know, everybody, well, what about this issue? What about that? Hey, man, I ain't but 24 hours in a day and 12 of them, I'm going to be asleep. 12? Give or take, if I, if I ain't got the boy. <laughs> hey, that, that is where I choose to put my time. I like to think of when the human race is functioning efficiently. This is part of what I believe has been disassembled to a degree over the years, especially in the black community. I believe that when functioning efficiently, we're social, but we're kind of a beehive where right. everybody has a job and you just do that job. And there's a queen. Sorry, just oh, wanted yes. to throw that there's, out there. Yeah, there is a queen. Just want to throw that yes. out there. There's a queen. <laughs> I didn't want you that know. to get lost in your beehive Yeah, a queen, story. queen, a queen, Beyonce. <laughs> <laughs> just, I want to throw that out there. You are Beyonce. Thank and you. Do you worry about being canceled? Obviously, you talk about the issues. You use your platform to shine a light on issues. But that can be tricky in this day and age. You mentioned, Dave, is that ever on your mind that there are red lines at places and issues that I should just leave alone? No, you can't worry about that because that line also slides. The line of cancellation is also something that moves and is very fluid based on how society changes. I remember I got suspended when I did more. I did more than radio for like 10 years after what did I you graduated. Do? And it was a prank call. And it was just a lot of cussing. It was, just, it was just cussing in the prank call or whatever. And somebody called the station and complained. Mm-hmm. And I got suspended. And this was right after the Janet Jackson Super Bowl. Super Bowl. Nipplegate. That same prank call was a prank call from the vault that had aired for a year on the station <gasps> pre Nipplegate. But this time, I got suspended for it. And when they, when they broke it down, you know, there were new FCC guidelines that were coming out. And the FCC was basically fining stations 100K per word offense. 
So even if you curse, but it was bleep, but it's still implied and people could understand it. If someone complained, that is enough for them to be able to file an FCC complaint. FCC considers indecency based on the guidelines as set by the public at large within that community. So Hmm. I learned my lesson about canceling. I got ran up the flagpole for a prank call that was all good a year ago, but this year somebody had a problem with it. So now I'm suspended. All right, cool. So at that point, you just have to try and be funny and you can try and operate within the guidelines and hope. But if someone's going to have a problem with what you say, they're going to have a problem with what you say. And as a comedian, as an entertainer, as whatever, whatever you are as a performer, I don't think there's a lot you can do about that other than walking out the door every day, walking on stage and saying what you think is funny and saying what you think is true. Now, the flip side. Is that you can't get mad when somebody get pissed off about it. I don't think entertainers today, I don't think they want freedom of speech. They want freedom of venue. Oh, walk me through that. They don't want freedom of speech. They want freedom of venue. Freedom of venue and freedom from consequence. You don't get freedom from consequence. There might be consequence. And I think when a lot of people say cancel culture, I think they mean consequence because I don't think that there is an entertainer that has pissed off a bunch of people that isn't still out there getting money. Are they getting less money? Absolutely. You're not going to get as much money as you would have gotten because you said the bad thing. But if there are people that are willing to pay money to see you and there's a venue that is willing to book you, you cancel Okay, I want to pick up on what you just said. They don't want freedom of speech. They want freedom of venue. So I've got to ask you then, how did you feel about the whole Chris Rock thing? Because that came with consequence. He used the venue freely and then he got whooped by Will Smith. Yeah. How do you place that in this context? I think the Chris Rock situation is just... Um, a lack of awareness that Will Smith would have actually come up on the stage. (laughs) If the next year the Oscars told the next host, hey, no jokes about anybody that's in the audience. And then that host goes out and starts doing jokes about people in the audience. And then we don't see that host on stage for the rest of the night. Like, that's getting canceled. You know, I'm I'm talking in a sense that Like, people get mad that they get kicked off Twitter because they said something that the community at large decided was obscene. That is what defines obscenity. And I think that's where the line gets a little blurred because you got a lot of people who ain't got a journalism degree out here with a microphone acting like they a journalist and then getting mad when they get held to the fire. I think that you will always have the right to say whatever you want to say, but you might just get beat down and deplatformed to the point where you are just going to have to be the dude in the park on a bullhorn. <laughs> you know they call them crazy, right? Those now they call them podcasters. <laughs> so, <laughs> Thanks for that. Thanks. No disrespect, right. not you. you. You actually study this. So, <laughs> so speaking of running people off or out. You somehow successfully did that with Trevor. (laughs) My plan is in motion. (laughs) I had no idea he was going to do that after I said that to him, just for the record. I was like, dude, really? I saw your tweet. You're like, I should have just kept my mouth shut. (laughs) He paused briefly when I said it so I could see him process it. And then he went on about the day. I didn't know that 
it was like all of these other calculations. And then the next day, yes, I'm stepping down from the Daily Show. Roy told me it's been seven years. And you know what? That's a good time to leave. Whoa, bro. I was saying it from a, hey, man, way to go. Today is seven years, man. <laughs> now, this last time you and I had a conversation, you, you decided to leave the show. And then why you bring my name into it when you quit? Consequences. Yeah. Back to the consequences. I'm no longer you... congratulating no one about anything <laughs> ever. So what, do, I mean, now that you've, you've, you've basically run him off and he's leaving soon. <laughs> um, Put no my shoes, own job no. in jeopardy. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, first of all, how do you feel about this chapter with Trevor coming to an end? Let's start there. I think we did a lot of good work. And I think once Trevor is out of the chair, there's going to be a lot of stuff leaking about just what he did in that building to build people up and give a lot of opportunities to a diverse array of people, not just domestically, but, you know, people from overseas as well, being able to come in and have a hand in putting a footprint on a show that became more diverse at a time where the discussion and issues around diversity were basically bubbling up to the forefront, you know, from women's rights and disability to trans rights to Black people to Black Lives Matter. Like, that show was the perfect show to be on at that time to help make sense of all of that, especially once social media made us more interconnected globally. I think that that really, it really created a show that was able to speak to things that were going on around the globe, but also showing how those things still connect to what's happening here in America. Like I said earlier, my first two stories out the door when I had started at The Daily Show was police reform. Jordan Klepper and I went to Appleton, Wisconsin a month after they'd had an unarmed killing. Their police department killed an unarmed black man. And we were there with them talking to them about their anti-bias training. So it might've been almost a year after the killing, but we did a ride along with a police department that had a bad shoot that killed an innocent boy. And that was powerful. My second piece was the 20th anniversary of the Million Man March. Mm. So, you know, you want to talk about the type of stuff he was greenlighting. He gave the correspondent, I can only speak as a correspondent, you know, he gave us space to cover the things that mattered to us. Right. It wasn't about his vision for, no, that's not what I want. Like, no, what do you care about? Because I know that's what you're going to go out and actually work at and actually try and bring back something decent. So, Follow the things that you find interesting. And that's what we were allowed to do. And we were allowed to do that for seven years. And I can't ask for anything better than that. So with him, you know, as the kids would say, getting up out of that chair, are you climbing into it? I'm just, you know, just asking for a friend. I, <laughs> I want to continue at The Daily Show in whatever capacity they see fit. Okay, don't give me that. I'm no, I'm not. That's I'm being. Some, I'm being straight just up. Just like they. No, if I mean, I'm. Have asked, you had meetings? We got to get to Atlanta and get through midterms. He say. <laughs> now you know we have to put one foot in front of the next, in front of the next. So uh, now you're channeling your dad. That is straight <laughs> up channeling your father. I felt that. I would. I would be. It would be an honor to have to be asked. Like that would be that would be dope. But even if I'm not asked, 
it would be an honor to stay. It's still a dope-ass job, and I still get to take a camera to strange places and show people what the hell is going on in the world. And I think for as long as I have that chance, I'm happy wherever I am. Well, Roy Wood Jr., it's been a huge privilege and a huge joy speaking to you and seeing how you use your voice, your humor, and your platform to do good. So thank you. Well, Keep thank on doing you. it. And if you get the job, I'm coming on the show. I'm just going to show up Absolutely. like an African auntie. Like an African auntie. <laughs> I'm just going to show up. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Where is Roy? <laughs> that's my African accent. I just tried. That's, uh, Don't do it. Uh, Don't do it. Let's leave it on a high. Yeah, Let's right leave there. it on a high. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thank you, Roy. Yeah. It's not often that you see a comedian use their platform for good. In this day and age, a lot of comedians are just trying to survive this fraught social climate, which brings with it the seemingly constant threat of being cancelled. So I found it interesting to hear Roy say that the fear of cancellation doesn't actually hang over him. However, he is mindful of making sure that when he speaks out on an issue, it's from a place of knowledge. While I understand the difficulties of using one's voice during these highly charged times, the truth is none of us can afford to sit on the sidelines in silence. You may not have comedy to act as your shield, but your voice is still required. And the truth is, as long as you do your homework and arm yourself with the facts, the fight for change is one you absolutely must take on. Thank you so much to all our listeners and thank you to our season sponsor, Mercedes-Benz. As always, check out the show notes for resources and learning materials from our guests. Please take time to rate and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on Apple Podcasts. Follow me at Aisha Sasay on Twitter and on Instagram at I am Aisha Sasay. The Accidental Activist is a Wonder Media Network production. Executive producers are Jenny Kaplan and me, Aisha Sasay. Our producers are Brittany Martinez, Taylor Williamson, and Chelsea Daniel. Our editor is Liz Smith, and our production assistant is Abby Dell. Guest booking by Mary Hollis Williams of Good Talent Lodge. And special thanks to Arella Productions. Take care, everyone. Until the next time, bye for now. <laughs>